there was a bit of a technical mishap with the recording of this week's podcast. So we're uploading audio taken from the room rather than from my teaching mic, just so there's something to represent the conclusion of this series. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 17 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. In the final lines of Colossians, we're talking about devoted prayer, gracious conversation, jackets, and books. And let's ask one more time, what do we do with all this? February of 2005, infamous writer and drug enthusiast Hunter S. Thompson, who's most famous, famous for his book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he committed suicide. He left a note. The note had a title, and it was called Football Season is Over. And it was only about 50 words long. Some of those words were no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50, 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. The funny thing about Mr. Thompson's note is that, like all letters, it solidifies a moment of communication in time. The emotions and ideas are kind of localized on the paper and frozen there. It was likely a letter he assumed would be read by both his loved ones and, being a public figure in all, the world, just like now. There are things that we can infer from the note just by reading it without knowing the man at all. And then if we decided to investigate, we would likely learn much more. But the note continues to speak long after it's being drafted, as writing always does. And we're left to read and wonder, to either ignore and dismiss it, or to ask bigger questions about what it means to live and die. Letters are like that. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We have been doing these kinds of things, investigating a letter for a few months now with another letter written in the first century by one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul and then sent to a new and burgeoning church full of new disciples of Jesus. We've been reading it, asking what it means to them, then asking ourselves bigger questions about what it means to be human, what the letter means for us now. Tonight, let's unpack the very last lines of Colossians. Would you guys stand together as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of the Messiah, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. 
My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. There are the, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters, sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. So, this is it. Granted, it didn't take years, like our studying the Gospel of Matthew did, but after four months, that's 17 Sundays in the text, and hours in conversation and prayer in our Man City communities, the letter ends here, at least our exegeting it does. It's a practical kind of ending. So practical, in fact, that there aren't a ton of dense theological ideas to untangle. There's not an awful lot of authorial intent to decode. We don't really need to build out a complicated historical context. In a way, it's sort of fitting. I'll be honest with you guys, this letter and this series took our church in a direction that I wasn't quite expecting. I've read this letter many times before we decided to build a sermon series from it. I had to write papers on it back in my early seminary days. I figured we would do the work, like always, work out each passage, one line, one word at a time, talk about it, ask ourselves, how should we live in response to what we're learning in the text? And we did that. We did all that. But as we moved through the letter, verse by verse, week by week, it became more of an unexpected mirror of our church, our own story, just, you know, some 2,000 years ago. So here's what I want to do tonight. Let's look at a couple of key moments in tonight's text, and then take a step back, bird's eye view, to talk about where we're at as a church, and where we're headed in light of what we've learned. You guys okay? You still with me? Yeah. Great, thank you. Now it all starts with Colossians verse four. I mean, chapter four, verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. There's no real wordsmithing necessary here, though Paul holds out hope that he'll be released from prison. He's writing from jail, remember? And he thinks that maybe he'll get out, that he'll make his rounds amongst the growing Jesus movement, the little churches scattered about the Roman Empire. For all he knows, he might be at the end of his race. That's a likelihood when you're a disciple of Jesus first century locked up. And he says as much in some of the other letters that he wrote from prison. Paul knows that he can't keep up pen pal relationships with these little communities forever, one way or the other. And after all the incredibly profound theological insight he sees that he's unpacked chapter by chapter, he's leaving them under this banner. Devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. Scholars argue that this is Paul's you're going to have to learn to do this on your own moment with the Colossian Christians. And watch as he hands off that responsibility, and in doing so, he entrusts himself to them. Look again at verse 3. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message. And see how Paul is not only handing over the responsibility of prayer, devote yourselves to prayer, but he's making himself vulnerable, asking that they pray for him. 
The teacher wants prayer from the students. And not in some generic, general sense, hey, if you think about it, pray for me. He's entrusting his mission, his vocation, his life to their prayers. It's something like a shaky 16-year-old driver who had spent the previous year in driver's ed only to be told by their instructor one day, okay, now I need you to drive me to work and people are waiting for me, let's go. It's not just the task itself, it's what's at stake, the importance of it, the gravity of this request. And it's not just Paul who should be thinking about the message of God beyond the church. This is now their job as well. Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. First, it's interesting that Paul refers to non-Christians as outsiders and that he wants the insiders to make the most of every opportunity in the way they act toward outsiders. This is another one of Paul's both ends. Much to the chagrin of the faux progressive coexist, everyone is totally the same rhetoric of our world, Paul says, no, there are insiders and outsiders. Scholar Scott McKnight says it this way, Paul's concern is walking wisely with respect to outsiders. There is a line between the church and the world, and Paul calls the world outsiders. But, much to the chagrin of the faux Christian culture war fundamentalists, the disposition of insiders toward outsiders is not to be terrified or hateful or mean-spirited. It is to be intentional, loving kindness. So, scholar Scott McKnight also argues, for Paul and his mission, there is a focus on forming Christian fellowships or churches of the redeemed and perceiving those outside, the other, as having not yet made the transition across the threshold into the body of Christ. And here's how that changes. Then look at verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt is an expression mostly unfamiliar to modern readers, but it's not hard to understand. It emphasizes the line that preceded it. Let your conversation be always full of grace. It's a bit like saying, always speak to one another with loving kindness. Be extra gentle, extra gracious. It's a way of elaborating on the same basic point, saying the same thing twice. And it's sort of a given in theory, if not in practice. I doubt it surprises anyone that Paul wanted disciples of Jesus to be intentional about the way they talk to other people to deliberately infuse their words with grace and kindness. But, I don't have to tell you, the reputation of American Christendom is not exactly one of gracious conversation. Heck, Americans in general, humans in general, are not known by and large for gracious conversation. Especially not in a time like the last few years we've had. My God. But all throughout the New Testament, the early church movement envisions a new society of men and women in which gossip and snarkiness and passive aggression and cruel condemnation and bickering and name-calling become an impossibility. If your conversation is always full of grace, this changes the way that you navigate disagreement, that you navigate hurt, that you navigate reconciliation. It becomes the reins on our words that always ask the question, before I speak, is what I am about to say gracious? And then there's this peculiar line that follows, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now here's what you have to understand about this bit. 
Paul does not expect that every disciple of Jesus will become a master theologian with a seminary education. That would be totally unrealistic. But commands like this one surface throughout the New Testament. While Paul may not have demanded that every Christian earn a PhD, he did expect that every disciple of Jesus would prioritize learning and growing in their knowledge of Bible and theology. And he's been talking like this all throughout his letter. This is, it was one of his first points that he made. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. If you follow Jesus, not bothering to grow in your knowledge of Bible and theology is a little bit like a piano student telling their teacher, I don't need to know chords. How else will you play the piano? You may not be out to become the next Beethoven, but if you want to play piano, you have to learn something. Think of a bit like the annoying logic we were all handed when we expressed frustration over ridiculous algebra lessons in school. We would say, when am I ever going to use this? And teachers would tell us, well, you may not use this exact thing, but you will need to know this because it will make everything else easier. Very few people would go on to become advanced mathematicians, but without a basic, basic understanding of mathematics, Lots of insignificant moments of our lives become needlessly complicated. Budgeting and shopping and scheduling and solving simple problems or helping your kids do their stupid homework and learning that they've changed math at some point and then driving both them and yourself insane with your inability to resolve a stupid first grade worksheet without counting your fingers like an ape. Oh, that's just me. Um, Anyway, I do it like under the table so he doesn't see what I'm doing. They don't want him to do that, but they didn't say anything about me. <laughs> Paul isn't after a society of academics. Not everybody is called to go to grad school and get a PhD, but he does expect that all disciples of Jesus will chase after and grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. This is massively important for a significant demographic of our church. In my experience, so many young people who follow Jesus allow themselves a certain ignorance of biblical and theological studies because, quote, I'm not a pastor or I'm not a theologian. That's not my thing. Okay, fine. But then the crisis comes. And then the questions start to pile up. And they lack the basic resources for theological competence, for biblical literacy, and the flimsy, uninformed faith can't stand up against the storm. And Paul knows this. And it's no coincidence that he pairs these commands Later conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Every disciple of Jesus is to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God. Will every disciple of Jesus become a theological mastermind? No. So, always be gracious. During my years in seminary and in my ongoing years as a pastor, I've been around a lot of people ready to argue Bible stuff. It's the, you know, the world in which I traffic. I've been, I've been one of them, the people ready to argue about Bible stuff. And that can be fine, stimulating, fun, entertaining, whatever. But if you've ever been around people who are sincerely trying to wrestle through what they believe about God and the Bible, maybe you've encountered two of the extremes. Obviously, it's a spectrum, and people fall anywhere on that spectrum. But the two extremes are, one, the militant, domineering, mean-spirited types hell-bent on intellectual conquest, on being right destroying any theological position that isn't theirs. In the business, we call them Calvinists. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a little theology humor for you. Kidding, kidding, sort of. And then, and then there are the kind, gentle types who may believe what they believe with passion and fervor, and they'll say so. They'll disagree. They'll debate. But they do it with such humility and open-mindedness that it's impossible to get worked up or feel belittled by them. This is how we are to speak, not just to outsiders, but to one another inside the church as well. The verbal bully always has to be worried about having the best comebacks and one-liners and mic drops. But if your conversation is always full of grace, you can be okay with not knowing everything. So Paul says, be gracious. And you'll know how to answer questions about what you believe with patience and humility and kindness and gentleness. And from there, Paul begins a long succession of greetings. Stuff like this, the way that Paul typically ends his letters, can seem boring and irrelevant. But I actually love this stuff. I love it because it's a real letter. For all Paul's profound theologizing, for all his mystic sensibility, the cosmic scope of his insight, at the end of the day, he's a real person writing a real letter to a real group of people in a real time and place. Christianity is not and has never been a purely esoteric philosophy, some purely mystical spirituality. It was and is a real movement of real people. So in the exact same letter that we read, this profound theological insight. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and, brought, and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Same letter we also read, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I were inventing a religious movement, I might leave out the part where I want my jacket and some books. You know, when L. Ron Hubbard and Joseph Smith were inventing their cults, they left their time-sensitive personal to-do lists out of the sacred texts. But Paul's greetings are not just about validating the authenticity of his letters, that this is a real guy writing to real people. There's some beautiful insight here for the discerning reader. Look at verse 7, for example. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him, I'm sending him to you from the, for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Now we know from Paul's letter to a guy called Philemon that Onesimus had been a slave. We talked about this at length last week. If you weren't here, go back and catch up on the podcast. Rather than calling for an impossible revolution in which the tiny, poor, beleaguered minority of Christians would attempt to overthrow the Roman institution of slavery and fail miserably, Paul instead commands relational dynamics that will undo slavery within the church. And here's how. Paul is sending Onesimus, former slave, back to the church in Colossae, but not as a subservient lesser than. He writes, he is one of you. He writes, he is our dear brother. And he's being sent, commissioned by Paul himself. Here's another interesting insight you can glean from the greetings. Look down at verse 10. My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, follow me on this for just a second. Keep your finger here in Colossians 4 and turn over just a few books to the left to Acts. The book of Acts chapter 15. 
in Acts, there's this little seemingly throwaway bit of narrative that shines light on what we read in Colossians 4. Let's read from Acts 15, beginning with verse 36. Here's the story. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, we just heard his name, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them, Pamphylia, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement about Mark that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Mark, of the Gospel of Mark fame, had a sharp disagreement with Paul and Barnabas earlier in their ministry work when they were doing their thing, going around the ancient Mediterranean planting churches. So sharp, in fact, that they parted ways over. They got into a big fight. They're like, you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. But then, flip back to Colossians 4 and reread verse 10 again. My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Somehow, between the time of that sharp disagreement and Paul's letter to the church in Colossians while he's in prison, Paul and Mark had not only reconciled, but had resumed their ministry collaboration. Paul does not write, I cannot talk to Mark because he is not a safe space for me right now. <laughs> Paul does not write, I am establishing forever boundaries with Mark because he triggers me. With this seemingly inconsequential name drop, hey, by the way, Mark might be coming, welcome him. We learn something about the early church's commitment to reconciliation. Let's look at one more fun thing. Skip down to verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, Paul doesn't unpack all the theological implications here himself, but it's interesting to know that one of the house churches in Colossae was led by a woman. A few scholars I read this week argue that this implies more than just opening her door to let people sit at her kitchen table, but that Nympha was a commissioned leader in the church. Last week we talked about a passage I believe has long been abused in which Paul outlines modes of mutual submission between men and women. women. If Paul had intended, as many have argued, that women should sit down and shut up and be led by men, then it's more than a little confusing why he didn't write, what are you doing? Don't let Nympha lead a house church. Put a man in charge of the house church. Instead, he just says, tell her I said, hey, keep up the good work. And then Paul signs off and the letter ends. This letter and this series took our church in a direction I wasn't quite expecting. I am a Bible enthusiast. I love the Bible. Honestly, I sincerely believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God, that it's authoritative, that it's beautiful and provocative and complex and outrageous and offensive. And I could probably have a good time teaching through the majority of it, give or take the passages that I worry are kind of above my pay grade. So when I thought through Colossians, it was half inspiration and half pragmatism. It's a great letter, great theological insights, beautiful writing in there. Paul is always reliable, you know. There's a few fun texts to mess with us and freak us out. And it's also short, four chapters, something for us to do this summer that won't require the next few years of our church, like the Gospel of Matthew. But then, over these last few months, it's been amazing to me the nerve these words have hit. 
As scholar N.T. Wright wraps up his commentary on the letter, he says this, The point Paul is making throughout is the thousand ways in which Christians belong to one another in a fellowship of mutual love, prayer, instruction, and service. It is undesirable and ultimately impossible for any individual Christian or church to go it alone and imagine they have nothing to gain or learn from other Christians and churches. The gospel is not about abstract ideas, but about people. People like us. So to end tonight and to end this series, if I had to summarize some of the crucial ideas we've been circling week after week after week, I would do it with four simple points that build one from the other. First, God has done something incredible. The text after which this entire series was named is from chapter 2. When you, us, all of us, were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Before you had any chance to respond to God before you loved God or knew God, when you were alienated from God and set against Him, when you were dead, God saw you with all your garbage and loved you anyway and made you alive. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but He forgave you, canceled the charge against you, and destroyed the powers of darkness at war for your soul. If you truly believe that, be grateful for it. Allow that gratitude to shape you, to rework your entire outlook on everything. If this is true, that changes everything. And become so shaped by gratitude until you are formed in thankfulness. And all of life is an outworking of your joyful response to God's goodness. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let your gratitude inspire faithfulness and holiness. Respond to God's goodness by embracing His unique way of life. Be different, set apart, dedicated to the way of Jesus. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. And therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be holy, different, unique, set apart, dedicated to God. And finally, and perhaps most importantly for our church and our season, let your faithfulness and holiness be made manifest in showing up. Show up with all that you are, not to fill a seat or to kill time, but showing up as in being present, participating, contributing. It's your family too. It's not the Josh show or the Cam show. It is your family too. Take responsibility for her. Paul cares deeply about the family of believers faithfully caring for one another. 
That's why he commissions them to pray for him also. He does not entrust himself as Lord over the entire church. But he understands that the church is a network of relationships and family, and they have to take responsibility for one another. One of the most basic, fundamental ways we step into that calling is by simply showing up, being present. Foundational to caring for your brothers and sisters in the church, to their growing in intimacy and trust and compassion and togetherness, is you being here faithfully. I've heard dozens of Christians lament the failure of others. My community wasn't there like I needed. My pastors weren't there. My friends weren't there. But I have yet to hear a single churchgoer lament their own failure to show how this creates an instability in community in which, in which what you have to offer your family is missing. They need you. You have something to contribute to the church. And if you don't, it won't be here. Not only that, but just being here, being present, demonstrates God's faithfulness to us. God shows up. God is present. God is faithful. When we do likewise, we become like God, and we demonstrate God's faithfulness to one another. Scott McKnight puts it this way. We see here in the letter an expression of ecclesial or church-shaped commitment to one another in presence, being here, advocacy, participating, and participation. Paul does not have in mind a general humanitarian benevolence, but instead a devoted commitment to presence, advocacy, protection, provision, and mutual sanctification with other followers of Jesus. The New Testament vision for this thing we call church is not sitting idly in a pew on Sunday without a life opened up to the messy accountability of community. And it certainly isn't an optional Sunday hangout when you don't have something better to do. So if I had to bring the points that we've been circling week and week and week after week, it might be something like this. God has done something incredible. Be grateful for it. Let your gratitude inspire faithfulness and holiness and let your faithfulness and holiness be made manifest in showing up, being present. I've had this sense across the last year or so that our church that is at some kind of crossroads. I'm sure most churches feel that way. Like just about every church I know personally, the plague has changed things. A couple of weeks ago, I had coffee with a young lady who was about to begin seminary, and she had questions about becoming a teacher and a pastor, and she was telling me how her church in Portland had been affected by the season of the virus. And she recalled a conversation with a friend who, when in-person gatherings were slowly resuming at their church, this friend admitted to her, I realized in my months at home on Sundays that really, I would rather not go to church. And when I commiserate with other leaders and pastors and churchgoers and I tell them how difficult it's been to find the shape of our church in the season of the virus, the overwhelming consensus has been, same here, Josh, same here. But I'm not an idealist, for better or for worse. I'm not, you know, the type A networking go-getter, aspiring megachurch pastor and influencer. Just give me a handful of people, imperfect, of course, Broken, yes. Messy, that's a given. But give me a handful of people that for all their mistakes, all their trial and error, really want to figure out how to follow Jesus together. A little rabble that cares enough to be present. And I'll admit to you guys, I don't like 
standing up here week after week and pleading with people to care about church. It's about as fun as a root canal, honestly. It has been a weird, discouraging season, and honestly, I'm torn. On the one hand, for all my sarcasm and dry disposition, I genuinely love our church. I love the people in it. And so part of me sincerely wants to plead with the stragglers, the half-ins, the flakes, come on, commit, be here. We want you and we need what you have to give our family. But another part of me feels it necessary to let that go sometimes. I don't want to spend all our time begging people to come to church. I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not an influencer hawking junk. You don't want to be here? Don't be here. This isn't a product. We are not selling tickets. Church is more than a half-hour podcast available for your consumption without contributing anything. I just want to follow Jesus with other people who also want to follow Jesus. If they don't care enough to be here, then we bless you. Godspeed. Move on. The rest of us, let's try this. Let's go for it. And that's some of you in this room. Believe me, we know it. Thank God for you guys. And we're about to keep going. We're about to begin a new practice in the fall. And after that, we'll begin our annual vision series and map out the vision for the next year of our church. And as I've been sitting in my office, kind of plotting a course for the rest of the year as best as I can, I remain forever uninterested in compromise. We're going to go for it. I can't do it by myself. I don't have anything to sell you guys other than my own brokenness, my own need for you to be here to worship with me, to pray and prophesy with and over me, to convict me of sin and hold me accountable. And that's what you need as well. That's what we need from each other. And if you're new and you just wandered in here and you're thinking, geez, this place is intense. <laughs> I wish I could tell you it's not usually like this, but who are we kidding? <laughs> Following Jesus takes everything that you have, all of us, and it's good. I believe that it is best but I can't do it by myself, and neither can you. And my prayer at this crossroads is for a new wave of faithfulness, that we would learn deep down in the depths of ourselves that God has done something incredible, that we would be grateful for it, that our gratitude would inspire faithfulness and holiness, and that our faithfulness and holiness would be made manifest in showing up and being present. So would you join me as we pray that over our church and our family. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.